0: This morning's Gospel lesson comes to us from Luke, chapter 6, verses 27 through 38. Listen now for the word of the Lord. But I say to you that, listen, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who abuse you. If anyone strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you won't be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For the measure you give will be the measure you get back. This is the word of the Lord. If we Presbyterians can be accused of doing something wrong when we read the Bible, it may be that we often refuse to accept the plain reading of the text. We love to escape to historical context, semantic range, linguistic interpretation, and philological abstraction. This is the method we use to get rid of the parts of the Bible we don't like. It goes like this. We read a particularly convicting part of scripture that makes us feel bad. We either feel guilty for not living up to that scriptural mandate, or we have political and philosophical disagreements with that scriptural mandate. So we begin to wrestle with the text dishonestly. We investigate the language for loopholes. We try to find edge cases and exceptions. This is the, but what about stage of the process? And because we are pretty good at this, we usually find a way to convince ourselves that this part of Scripture doesn't really apply to me. Perhaps it applied in generations past, but our enlightened reading of the text means that we know better. This morning, you're entering the no-spin zone. I solemnly promise to you that there will be no funny business in today's lesson. Instead, I will try to make the case that the golden rule, as it is often called, should be interpreted literally. Starting with verse 27, Jesus says, but I say to you that here, and it's as if Jesus has broken the fourth wall, turned directly to the camera and said, yeah, I'm talking to you. Luke, scholars note that Luke grammatically emphasized Jesus's focus on the universality of this message. In the parallel material offered in Matthew, Jesus directs this to only his disciples, but in Luke, Jesus is concerned with all of his followers, anyone who is listening. So what follows is directed at you and me today. Love your enemies. Perhaps no other scriptural mandate has endured more abuse and perversion at the hands of Christians than this one. Love your enemies. Ask a child what this means, and they'll likely give you a better answer than I ever could. As Patrick said last week, this is not a call for victims to forego justice. This is not a justification for evil to be endured by the righteous. Biblical love, as we find it in the life of Jesus, is self-sacrificial, but it is self-sacrificial in the pursuit of justice. Our liturgy reminds us of this every week. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died to satisfy the demands of God's justice. Our communion liturgy proclaims the saving death of our risen Lord. So love of enemy begins with God's love of us. The self-sacrificial love of enemy begins with Jesus. Love of enemy, therefore, must always foreground love's power to transform unjust situations to heal what is broken, and to restore dignity. The love of enemy that Jesus commands us is nothing less than the love God used to make us his children. To put it crudely, God did not want humanity to be enemies, so Jesus came and made us sons and daughters. Verse 27 continues, Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. The hardest thing to understand about these commands are not the plain reading of the text. The hardest thing to understand is why an all-knowing God is asking us to do the impossible. Surely Jesus is well aware of just how fallen humanity is by this point in his ministry, and yet Jesus confronts humanity's limitations with a call to holiness so high only he can reach it. What Jesus is setting up in this list of commands is a code of personal holiness that undergirds the reciprocal relationship that is at the heart of the Golden Rule. Jesus is saying your personal life, your character, and your holiness are the very basis of your relationship with others. Rather than evaluating each person according to who they are and then treating them accordingly, You must treat others according to who you are. If you're a righteous person, you will interact with another out of your righteousness. If you're a pure person, another's impurity will not hinder you from loving them. If you're an honest person, then another's dishonesty will not affect your ability to remain honest with them. Some may find the idea of personal holiness legalistic. A form of works-based righteousness or just plain fuddy-duddy. But Jesus doesn't. Jesus spends his ministry focused on shaping the inner character of his disciples. He measures this progress by asking them questions that reveal their understanding of God's love. He ultimately goes to the cross, not so that we can become a people who just think the right things, give to the right charities, and attend the right churches. No. He goes to the cross so that we might be made holy, as God is holy. If you'll allow me, I'll skip verse 29, since Patrick preached on that last week, and we'll move on to verse 30. Give to everyone who begs from you, and of him who takes away your goods, don't ask for them again. After living in New York City for some time, this verse has hit home. As I told you in the beginning, I'm asking everyone to take this literally today. So what would it mean to give to every homeless person who asks me for change? I imagine sometimes it would be easy. I would dig through my pockets, pull out whatever I had, and give it away. But other times I wouldn't have money on me, and so I'd have to find an ATM or a bodega where I could buy something for the person. Maybe I would give them the apple I brought for lunch. I know a priest who took this scripture to heart and began withdrawing money from her bank account every week for the sole purpose of giving to beggars. But what about the undeserving poor, as they are crudely called? Those struggling with addiction who may use this money to their own detriment. One night, when I was in college, a friend and I were driving from Dallas to San Marcos, Texas, and that drive is about four hours long. We left at 10 p.m., so we expected to arrive at 2 in the morning. About three hours into the journey, I was fast asleep in the passenger seat with my friend driving. And a drunk driver hit the side of our car, sending us flying off of the exit ramp of the highway. (laughs) The front end of our vehicle landed so violently that the two front tires of the SUV exploded. By the grace of God, my friend and I were both completely fine. In the seconds after we landed, we looked up and saw the car that had hit us stopped just ahead of us. The car paused for a moment and then sped away, leaving us alone in the dark on the highway at one in the morning. My friend called the cops, and as we waited for them to arrive, we began to inspect the vehicle. We weren't sure if it was safe to wait in, much less salvageable. And as we looked at the rear end, we noticed that the hatchback had flown open upon impact, and our luggage had fallen out. We carefully retraced the steps of our flight path, hoping to find the bags in the street. And it was then that a homeless man approached us, asking if we were okay. He said he'd seen the entire accident and that he rushed over as soon as he could. And as he drew closer, I realized he was carrying our bags. I excitedly told him, those are our bags. Thank you so much for grabbing them. These are yours, he said. If you want them back, you're going to have to give me something in return. My friend and I looked at each other. We were two 18-year-olds who had just gotten into a major car accident with no more than $20 between us. I pulled out my wallet. I have $5, I said. I have a 10, said my friend. I'll take 15 Here you go. The man gave us our bags back and walked away. Whenever I tell this story, the thing that most people point out is just how unjustly we were treated by the homeless man. He took advantage of two young men in a terrible situation. But what I never hear is you're lucky to be alive. I can't believe the car was totaled and you both walked away unharmed, no. Instead, most people fixate on the $15 we probably would have spent on pizza and beer. the truth is, we could afford to lose the $15. We could even afford to lose the totaled car. We had police officers on their way to help us, and friends driving over an hour to pick us up and bring us home at 2 a.m. But the man who found our bags cannot afford any of that. Why was he awake and outside at 2 a.m.? Why was he willing to leverage his position, even though he knew it was wrong? maybe desperation, survival. Whatever the case, it didn't matter. I think implicit in the command to love our enemies is the idea that we are really bad at identifying who our enemy is. If there is an enemy in this story, it's the reckless drunk driver, not the man who took our money. All too often, anything that comes in between us and our idol gets labeled as an enemy. And all too often, the idol we're worshiping is not God, it's money. Verse 30 commands us to stop seeing the needy as merely forces that separate us from our money and instead as subjects of God's blessing. As for verse 31, where we are given the golden rule, I can offer nothing to improve on it. As the wise multinational corporation Nike says, just do it. Treat others the way you want to be treated. Take this literally as much as you are able. Verses 32 through 36 largely restate the same premise but add an important qualification. But love your enemies. Do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. I'm sure an entire sermon series could be centered around this one verse, and in a financial capital like New York City, I'm betting it would be very poorly attended. For those who work on Wall Street or in the financial sector, this advice is pure nonsense. I don't presume to know a lot about finance, but I'm pretty sure no one gets promoted by lending and expecting nothing in return. But once again, I will ask you to take this seriously in your personal lives. Find ways to give to others Financially, not just spiritually and emotionally. Giving spiritually and emotionally are important disciplines, but I don't think that's what Jesus has in mind here. Jesus uses the language of creditor and debtor strategically. He invokes financial language because he wants to say something about our relationship with God. Presbyterians have long used the term redeemer to describe what Jesus has done for us. In our version of the Lord's Prayer, we ask God to forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors. Our understanding of salvation is shot through with the logic of financial transactions in which one person's profit comes another's loss. Jesus is asking us to abandon a transactional understanding of human relations. Instead, love your enemies— Do good and lend expecting nothing in return, and then your reward will be great, and you will be the children of the Most High. Only by expecting nothing in return can we receive the return God has promised. Only by lending without receiving can we share in God's nature and become his children. In other words, if we want to be children of God, we must act like Jesus, God's only Son. And how does Jesus act? He gives his life for the ungrateful and wicked, that's us, and expects nothing in return. Jesus cancels our debts by paying the price we couldn't pay. And in this way, Jesus redeems us for himself. So every time we love our enemies, do good, and lend expecting nothing in return, we become a little bit more like the Jesus who transformed humanity's relationship to God. Like most of Jesus' commands, this is easier said than done. I struggle with this way of living on a daily basis, but when I have been successful in living in this way, I've experienced the power of God to transform my enemies into objects of God's love. God has transformed my formerly scarce amount of money and resources into an abundance that satisfies not only me, But those in need who God has put into my life. God has transformed relationships that were once deformed by the power imbalance that results from a debtor-lender relationship into a new relationship defined by God's mercy and forgiveness. How has God transformed your life through this kind of mercy and forgiveness? How can you offer this kind of mercy and forgiveness to others? Is there a debt you can forgive? Is there a relationship that you can transform through a word of mercy? Above all else, have you accepted the mercy God offers in Jesus? Because it's a lot easier to forgive others when you know that you were once in need of forgiveness. And through no effort of your own, you were mercifully forgiven. Amen.